Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Frida Pauli, who is the founder and CEO of Pymetrics. Frida was trained at Harvard Medical School and MIT in neuroscience, and then went on to do her MBA at Harvard Business School before founding her own company. Frida, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Harpreet. Uh, very excited to be here. So uh, let's start with your background. It's very interesting. I see neuropsychology at Harvard Medical School, then neuroimaging and personalized medicine at MIT. So how do you move from academia into a startup life? <laughs> with great trepidation, Harpeet. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know, I was really, I was at Harvard and MIT for uh, a decade. Um, it was really the mecca of, you know, brain science at the time. It was incredibly, and probably still is, and was incredibly exciting, all of the new discoveries that were being made. However, at the end of the day, I think it lost interest for me only because it didn't have a direct path to something more tangible that I could actually, you know, help people with in a, in a more immediate fashion. So I actually um, transitioned out of academia through the MBA program at Harvard, as you just mentioned. Um, and I had sort of positioned myself as I want to be a tech entrepreneur or, you know, some kind of entrepreneur. I didn't exactly know what I was going to do. And it's, you know, the classic example of a technology meeting a problem whereby, you know, um, <laughs> the, the most amount of time spent in an MBA program is recruiting. Um, that's all people do for two years, uh, or a lot of people do. And so it really gave me a front row seat to what that process was like. And I always say that, you know, business school students at Harvard are one of the most overserved populations on the planet. I mean, people spend inordinate amount of money recruiting them. And even despite that, I think the process had some pretty clear um, problems with it. Um, and so I just thought, wow, if it's not working that well here, probably isn't working well anywhere. Um, and you know, the problems that I saw sort of firsthand were, you know, a lot of my classmates thinking they wanted to be fill in the blank and then, you know, being smart and sort of positioning themselves well during the interview process, getting the internship and then hating their job after three days. And you were just like, so not only is it not working for the company, but really the problem I felt most acutely was that it doesn't, wasn't working for people. And that was what inspired me the most. And then I think the second thing is just, you could see sort of firsthand some of the biases that would go into, you know, people's thought processes. And, you know, so I'll speak for myself. Like, I think some of the biases come from oneself. Like I didn't, you know, I was at the time I was in my thirties. I was a single parent of a very young child. Um, you know, I was a, you know, uh, not somebody who you routinely see on the cover of, you know, Inc. Magazine, right? You, you, you know, and so I think I had a lot of doubt myself, a lot of self-bias around, can I do this? Am I the right type of person to do this? You know, and so on and so forth. So, you know, now it seems like an obvious thing, but back, you know, 10 years ago, it, it didn't seem so obvious. So I saw the flaws in recruiting or workforce decisions in general. And that's what prompted me to want to start Pymetrics. So, so, so what, what was that recruiting process like that you uh, you know, saw these flaws. What, yeah, it's not any different than any other recruiting process. Um, if anything, like I said, HBS students are, you know, an overserved population. It, it's really even so the flaws that I saw, you know, 
you know, repeatedly were things like trying to evaluate someone based on a resume. I mean, I think we have all done that and we have all seen the limitations. And that was from the recruiter perspective. And we spoke a lot to recruiters at HBS as well, not just students. Both students and recruiters felt like this is, a, it's sort of like trying to, you know, back 50 years ago or 30 years ago, people would put personal ads to figure out whether you wanted to date someone. It's like the difference between a personal ad and like, you know, a dating app, right? I mean, I think we would all agree that a dating app provides more information, right? Um, why? Because it's, it's just more holistic picture, right? So that was a big challenge was just that the, the first decision made and, you know, quite frankly, up to, you know, 90% of people could be can applying for any given job are cut at that stage where it's a very, you know, sort of two-dimensional picture of someone. That was one of the biggest problems that we saw. And that's essentially what Pymetrics is, is designed to, to solve for. Um, and what was wrong with it is that the information was quite lacking. It didn't really tell you much about a person overall. It had no mention of soft skills. It was all focused on your hard skills, what you have done. Um, it was very backward facing as opposed to future facing. Soft skills are about what you can do. Hard skills are about what you have done. So we want to know when you're career searching, we don't want to just know what you have done. We want to know what you can do. Um, and then, of course, there was the issue of bias, right, that, uh, that crept in on so many levels. So I think all of those issues were very apparent um, just even in watching one semester of HBS recruiting. So, so, so uh, how does then neuroscience come into the picture and how does AI come to the picture? Sure. <laughs> um, I'm laughing only because like when I, I remember telling investors that we were going to have a neuroscience solution for recruiting and at the beginning people were like, you're going to do what? <laughs> they were not convinced. Uh -huh. um, so neuroscience is, is one way to think about it, but essentially at the end of the day, what neuroscience has developed is a toolkit of um, computer activities. We call them games, but essentially they're computer activities um, that allow a person to understand their soft skill profile. So by soft skills, I mean cognitive, social, and emotional aptitudes or traits, things that are more inherent in us um, and that have nothing to do with what I've learned in school or at work. It's not a hard skill, like a hard skill is like, I can write a macro in Excel. Um, a soft skill is I'm detail oriented, right? Um, and so neuroscience has developed, like I said, a suite of assays that can look at soft skills, cognitive, social, and emotional traits. People call them power skills now. There are a whole bunch of things people call them. Um, that is so critical to A, having a more complete picture of someone to having that picture be much more future facing. So if you assess someone based on their soft skills, um, they will have a much broader range of things they could do than they will ever do in their life, right? Because most people, you know, maybe they have three careers, five careers, you know, whatever, but you're probably a soft skill fit for 20, 30, 50, who knows, a lot more careers. So it really is a more expansive universe of what you can do. And then, so that, and so basically, and the other thing to, to note about, two more things, I guess, Soft skills are also far more equally distributed in the population than hard skills. Um, they're basically free of any gender bias and they're quite, they're, they're, they have some ethnic bias only because there's so many different ethnic groups, but it's, it's, it's de minimis compared to other types of biases that we see. So if you're trying to make equitable decisions, it is much, much easier to make an equitable, equitable decision when you're focusing on soft skills. So that's another key component. If you're trying to remove bias, you want to start with unbiased data. And then last but not least, it also allows for greater socioeconomic opportunity because think about it, your hard skill 
profile is extremely dependent on what quintile of the socioeconomic distribution you grew up in, quite frankly. And, and it's terrible that that is true, but let's just be real, it's true. Um, and we can, we, we should and must try to fix it. But if we just start with where we're at today, if you were born into, you know, the bottom quintile of the distribution, your hard skills are probably not going to look like the ones that you will have if you're born into the top quintile. And again, this must be solved also, but just taking that to be true, you, you but your soft skills won't. Your soft skills are independent of socioeconomic status. Therefore, if you want to move from like a retail clerk to digital marketing, a soft skill profile will actually tell you, yeah, you can do that. A hard skill profile is not going to, it's going to keep you very stuck on a particular rung of the socioeconomic ladder. So anyways, there are many reasons that you want to use soft skills when evaluating people for, for jobs. So, so you are- I'm sorry. And just neuroscience just allows you to do that in a way that is objective and, and uh, scalable. So, and, and your argument here is that the, this person who perhaps is a clerk somewhere doesn't have the right training uh, because they have soft skills, they can actually thrive in Absolutely. a different career. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we actually have put together a platform with Infosys. I'm going to give it a little plug here called Reskill and Restart, which is geared entirely towards addressing um, the COVID-19 situation, which by the way, is the biggest, you know, sort of mass uh, talent reallocation since World War II um, and happening, you know, in an extremely compressed timeframe. Um, so what we've done with Infosys and Burning Glass um, is we've put together soft skills, hard skills and learning pathways um, and wrapped a marketplace around them. And so what we're doing is we're basically saying, okay, Harpeet, you know, I know you've only done these three careers. Actually, you're a great fit for these 20 careers. And, you know, these 10 are fast growing. So that's the Pymetrics part. Then the burning glass part is saying, okay, let's assess your skills gap, right? Let's say you were a retail clerk, but you're a great fit for digital marketing and that's growing really quickly and it will provide you an $80,000 salary as opposed to $25,000 salary. What's the learning pathways you need for that? And that's where Infosys Wingspan comes in to provide those, those learning pathways. So regardless of Pymetrics, Burning Glass, Infosys, what you need really is a stacked layer of technology that can help you assess soft skills, hard skills, and then personalize training that, that needs to happen. And so absolutely those three elements are needed, I think, um, so I'm not saying soft skills is the only thing you need, but it is a critical, critical component. Mm -hmm. And, and what kind of data are you collecting when you are trying to make these determinations? Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. So from the soft skills piece, um, we have, okay. So again, I was a cognitive neuroscientist. What do cognitive neuroscientists do? They assess people using, um, a variety of different tools, but one of the main tools we use is our computer activities. Um, why did we develop these computer activities? So when you put somebody into an MRI machine and you want to study memory, um, you better make sure that they're actually doing something that requires memory when they're in the scanner. Well, you can't actually do a lot when you're in the scanner other than like you're lying back with your, you know, looking at a little mirror and all you can do is move your, move your fingers. So people have developed all these computer activities um, that measure memory, attention, planning, sequencing, task switching, altruism, a whole host of, of soft skills. So we knew that there was this sort of virtual library of soft skills that we could pick from or soft skill assays that we could pick from. Um, and that's what we've done. So we've collected a number of them and put them into what we call the Pymetrics platform. And they assess everything from planning, attention, sequencing, task switching, focus, to altruism, reward preferences, um, emotional, emotional style. I mean, just a whole variety of different things. And we will continue to expand that platform 
Um, but the core of the platform is really drawing on um, scientific expertise that has de been developed by lab, by bench scientists, which is what I used to be over the last, you know, two or three decades to measure, you know, what HR professionals or lay people call soft skills and what we would call, you know, aptitudes or so social, emotional and cognitive traits. So, mm -hmm. and then how do you marry that with AI? Oh yeah, sure. Sorry. So, um, yeah, so that's the data part. And the AI part is, well, how do you know what makes someone a soft skill fit for a job, right? That's the other part, right? So I know what my soft skill profile is. Now, how do I know if I'm a good fit to something? That's where the AI comes in. So you need lots and lots of training data to say, okay, well, if you're a digital marketer, here's your profile. If you're a, you know, um, a data scientist, here's your profile and so on and so forth, right? And we do that both at the industry level. So we can provide you with a general profile of what a data scientist looks like, but then we can, we, what we do that's more granular than that, we can, any client that we work with will actually say, okay, well, this is a general data science profile, but we're going to collect data from your individual population. And that's going to be your data science profile. Cause it could be that, you know, different job titles have slightly different, um, you know, responsibilities in different organizations. And also the values of an organization is, could also be embedded in that. Let's say that, you know, my organization, um, even though I'm a data scientist, the values of the organization um, state that we are looking for people who are altruistic. Now, that's not necessarily in needed for the job of data science, but it's a value um, in the company that might get picked up as well if you're, if you're um, in the training data. So um, long story short, the AI comes in because we're basically collecting training, training data sets at scale and then building lots of algorithms off of that. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future-of-work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expropy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expropy.com for more information. So now, now um, paradoxically, AI can introduce its own biases. So how do you guard against that? <laughs> sure. Well, so I just want to be clear. AI didn't go off. AI isn't a thing that went off to an AI convention, got together with all these other AIs and said, oh, let's be biased. That, that's not how it works. So a lot of times I think it's presented that way. Um, AI are, are just learning. It's a mirror. It's like a, you could use the analogy of a toddler or a mirror. So it's either a toddler that's learning from its human, you know, master, so to speak. Um, or it's a mirror that's reflecting back human decision-making. It's one of, you know, and both analogies are accurate. Um, so when we think about AI introducing biases, there are biases that already exist in human decision-making. And I think we need to be extremely clear about that. It is not introducing new biases. It is exposing to us in a way that makes us highly uncomfortable that human decision-making is extremely biased and it's exposing it to us in a way that we cannot avoid. When you're looking at human decision-making, there's often no paper trail. There's often, we kind of know that it's biased. We don't really know. And maybe that was biased. Maybe it was me. You know, it's like one of those things, right? 
versus when you encode that in training data and algorithm, it's like, wow, okay, it's biased, right? And so I just want to make that point clear because it is the human decision-making process that is being encoded in the AI that is biased. But at the end of the day, it's the human process that is biased. So we're basically talking about the same thing. It's like, I was telling you human decision-making is biased and now the AI is saying, yep, it's biased. So, so, but that's problematic because sometimes, and I don't think anyone thinks this anymore, but when AI first kind of came into being, people were like, oh, it's an algorithm, it's subjective, meaning, you know, it has no bias, it can't have a bias, it's, a, it's an equation. Well, we know that's obviously not true now, right? So that's, I think, one of the, the main dangers is that people might think it's objective. I don't think anyone thinks that anymore, but that is the danger. However, um, and I think, you know, some really great academic minds, Sendel Mullenathan, uh, John Kleinberg, um, Cass Sustine, and uh, uh, Jens Ludwig wrote a great paper called algorithms as discrimination detectors. And their whole point is that unlike the human brain, which is A, biased, two, not fixable in any way, unconscious bias training we've shown uh, does not work, and three, not regulated. People, generally speaking, you can't sue someone for unconscious bias. Algorithms are, are the opposite. So basically you can go in and actually look at an algorithm and say, okay, you can test it. You can test it before you deploy it and say, is it treating men and women fairly? Is it treating people of different ethnic backgrounds fairly? And if it's doing something that is not consistent with legal and you know, societal definitions of fairness, you can actually alter the way the algorithm is performing. So you can dual optimize for both performance and fairness. Um, algorithms are much more regulated than human unconscious bias. So that's actually a plus. Like some, you know, it's again, it, it's a little scary because now you're, you're, you're on the hook. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to do the right thing, you should want to, to sort of be held accountable. Um, uh, and, and third, it's just expose, you know, algorithms, because they're leaving a paper trail, can expose these biases. So that's actually a good thing because then it allows us to, to fix them. So that's the plus side. And that's what we do is we basically dual optimize all of our algorithms for both performance and fairness. And we basically stick to the legal definition of fairness, which is, you know, statistical parity called the four-fifths rule in the U.S. It has other sort of generally similar definitions outside of the U.S. The challenges, I think, Harpeet, is that a lot of people, and this is true, I think a lot of times people, there are not enough mechanisms to look under the hood of algorithms, and I think that's the reason people are so worried about them. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons, and we're actually proponents of changing that. Um, I think also, unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of algorithms have been built by a very homogeneous group of people who don't think about bias, right? And, and I was talking to a reporter about this yesterday. So she asked me, well, why do you think people don't think about bias? And I said, you know, I'm a woman. I have often experienced sexism. It's kind of like I, you know, just kind of, it's a thing that I've experienced all my life, right? If you're a man, you won't have experienced sexism, most likely, right? And so therefore, if you've never experienced sexism or racism or whatever the, you know, the isms are out there, um, you know, as a man, you might go to a computer science class, see primarily men and think, oh, well, women just aren't good at computer science. Well, that's not what the data tell us. The data tell us that women are not, uh, you know, staying or, you know, you know um, staying in those fields oftentimes because they don't feel comfortable because they're not made to feel comfortable and so on and so forth. Right. If in fact, there's really interesting, it's a little bit of a tangent, but 50 years ago, 70 years ago, computer science was much more gender equally distributed and has changed over time. Right. There's a great movie on this. I'm forgetting the name point is if you're a man in that situation, you've never experienced sexism. You might actually think, Oh, well, th the reason that the world is the way it is, is because of inherent aptitudes. Right. 
as a woman, you might be like, no, 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 that's because of sexism, you know? And so if you're then building algorithms, you will keep that in mind. You will, you will optimize for fairness and you will, you will assume people are equal. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've met enough people who are not in sort of minority groups who, who don't necessarily think that. I mean, you know, I've had conversations with certain types of men who really will go to bat and say, well, the reason there aren't that many women represented in engineering programs is because they're not as good. And I just, you know, I've had arguments about that. So that's why I think the other cautionary tale around, around algorithms is that, you know, the designers of these algorithms are not very thoughtful oftentimes when it comes to bias and therefore are not putting in like bias checks or, you know, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a great point about uh, the homogeneity of the, uh, the designers. Yep. And then ultimately we're dependent on the training data. So, yep. it, so you know, you, you, you're gonna, you'll take the training data that will bring in the bias. So is, is there a solution to that? Can, can we perhaps use synthetic yeah. training data? Yeah. Well, so, so that's why I was mentioning that soft skill data is by and large far more equitably um, distributed. So if you look at men and women, for example, um, and the data that we collect on people, there are really no population level differences between men and women in Pymetrics data. That is not true. If you look at hard skill data, we just talked about it. If you look at women and men in engineering degrees, there's a big skew towards men, right? So that's why having unbiased data actually matters a lot because then you don't need to do nearly as much to, in quotes, fix the data problem, right? And that's what I keep explaining to people is that the data matters, right? Um, so that's one big advantage that we have over hard skill engines or whatever, right? And, and again, there's millions of hard skill engines, right? And they struggle with this. I mean, all of them struggle with this and are always curious as to how we don't. And, and we explain that it's a data distribution issue. However, you know, when you build an algorithm and the training set is not as heterogeneous as you would like, which is oftentimes, unfortunately, you do have to do things to ensure. So first of all, we test, you know, for statistical differences, which is the key way that we find bias. And then if we find it, then we have a variety of different things that we can do um, to mitigate it. Sometimes it's, you know, a variety of different things. You can oversample, um, you, can, you can go back to the training data provider and say, we really need to get some more <laughs> diversity in there, you know, like let's work to, to get that to happen. Um, we, there's a variety of different things that, that we can do. So, um, so it's really a data and an algorithm problem. You know, how you the other thing I would say, I mean, the other thing I just have to point out, I'm not sure who the, the listenership of your podcast is many things you would like to do from a data science perspective are actually illegal, um, in, in, with respect to employment law. So, you know, a common technique um, say in financial algorithms um, is to build different algorithms for men and women. That's illegal in employment context, right? Same for race. Um, so a lot of the fixes that data scientists might think of actually are not, not, you're not able to do that. You're not actually able to treat people differently in the context of employment law. So that means you can't take in race or gender as an explicit variable in your algorithm. So you have to find other ways um, to, to work around it basically. Yep, yep, absolutely. I think that that's a big challenge. So with with the pandemic, uh, how do you see the land, the job landscape, and the career landscape changing? Uh, you, you, do you see some of these gaps uh, widening that you you talked about? Yeah. So, um, well, I think it's too soon to say, right? I mean, I think so. Sorry, I think women and people of color have been more more you know hit more you know have had worse consequences as a result um, for a variety of different reasons. So there's no denying that. But I think in the recovery, 
um, I think that's where the hope lies. Um, and, and, the, and, the, and the goal, it's not just the hope, it's the goal. I think there is a different level of national conversation at this point, and, and probably international, but I'm only familiar with the US conversation on actually making sure that racial equity happens um, in a way that I don't think, you know, it was really ever discussed in such a, you know, sort of, you know, vociferous and determined way. And, as, and again, to, you know, again, to give <laughs> reskill and restart another little plug, part of the reason that, you know, partners were so interested in working with us is because our algorithms are equitable, right? And that's why our clients want to continue to work with us or new prospects want to work with us is because they're even, they're very keenly focused on equity at this point. Um, so I think we don't have any hard data on the recovery because I'm not sure we're in the, I'm not sure we're in the recovery phase yet. I mean, I think we're getting there, but I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. However, at least from my perspective, I think from the circles I run in, there is a strong focus of how do we make this recovery equitable. So. So, so any, any parting words for our audience? Um, <laughs> any parting words that we haven't already covered? This is completely off topic, but I think it's something else. So I think the, the parting words I would have for sort of a general audience, I think is, um, you know, when I think one of the things that Pymetric strives to do, we didn't really touch upon it, but I think it's just important to, to, to talk about is we really strive to change the notion around, um, around how we should be approaching work. And what I mean by that is the following. Pymetrics is, um, is a fit-based system. What that means is if you go through Pymetrics, there is no scenario where you fail. Meaning a lot of assessments or tests, you know, there's a high and there's a low end of the spectrum. And if you're not scoring on the high end, you have in quotes failed. That's not the way it works. Pymetrics basically any dimension on, you know, the assessment that we measure could be good or could be less adaptive. It just really depends on the, 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 jo the job, right? And I just described that even the same job at different companies could require different things. So I really want to stress that because it's core to who we are. I mean, like my you know, sort of vision mission behind starting Chemetrics was to help everyone realize their true potential and to help match everyone to their best fit job. You can only do that if you create a system that is fit based and not um, sort of dimensional, right? Meaning like one dimension is good and one dimension is bad, right? And I think that historically, and we continue to think about it this way, historically, we have a society that has really trained people to believe that if you're, and I'm going to literally quote somebody that I heard say this, smart, nice, and driven, you know, you're going to be successful everywhere. Well, no offense. I think that's bullshit. I mean, <laughs> there are plenty of occupations where, um, you know, being nice might not actually be something that's adaptive, right? Do we need nice CIA agents? Do we need nice bouncers? I mean, do we need nice, I mean, is everyone, I don't know. I'm, I don't want to cast aspersions on <laughs> different professions, but, you know, if nice means emotionally stable and, you know, always smiling, I just don't think that that's a requirement for all jobs, right? And um, so the point I'm trying to make is, a fit-based system, which basically tries to say here, not here, or you're better suited over here, you can try this, but it might be less, you know, sort of optimally suited to you, is what we need to strive for. And, you know, in human terms, it just means that every, you know, every pot has a lid. And I don't think we take that approach when it comes to work. We are still in the business, both educationally and vocationally, of telling people, if you do these three things, if you have these three skills, if you have, and it's just, 
I, I'm still just blows my mind, right? I mean, in the sense that there are so many different occupations out there. There are so many ways to make a living that to think, and it really, there are smart people that are still putting out this message that you have to have these three things and hence you will be successful in any job. Um, it is just a bad message. And not only that, it then cuts out vast swaths of the population who don't have those things, right? Whatever those three things are, there's always going to be a smaller number that have them than that, that don't have them. That's the whole goal of these, you know, tests that are, you know, on a spectrum. And I, I just think it creates unhappy people. That's what I saw at HBS, quite frankly. You know, I want to be in investment banking. I think that to be an investment banker, I need to be these three things. I'm going to pretend and fake my way into being those three things during the interview. Then I'm going to get into the job, realize I don't have those three things. I don't want to have those three things and I'm going to quit my job. Um, it, it's just, a, it's, it's a system designed to fail. And so I think we have to stop sending people those messages. I think we have to we as human beings have to say, I'm going to be my true self, not try to fit into some mold. And again, I, I swear to God, there was a post on LinkedIn just recently of like, don't be your true self at work. You know, only three people are going to like you if that's the case. And I'm like, what a horrible message to think you have to be your fake self for more hours of the day than not. That is, to my mind, just why people hate work, right? Because if you have to fake to be somebody and you're not. And so I would just encourage everyone to be your true self. I know it's a scary thought because we're told from the minute we're born that you have to act a certain way and be a certain way to get good grades and a good job and all the rest of it. But I mean, we have to break that notion because otherwise people will, how can you tell someone be disingenuous for, you know, 10 hours a day and be happy in your life? That, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. So be your true self. I think there are more and more systems like Pymetrics that are really helping people find their fit rather than tell them to be a certain way and then teach them how to cheat or dissemble their way into being that. Um, I, that's, those are my last parting words is that I, we really have to rethink the way we communicate um, what it means to be successful and, and, and how being true to yourself is actually the best way, I think, to be successful. Well, that's very well said. Mm -hmm. this, this has been a real pleasure. What a uh, treat to, to have you on the yeah, show. Thank you for having me, Harpreet. <laughs>